Okay, John chapter 12. And let's start at verse 12. It says this. The next day, a great multitude had come to the feasts when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, remember last week we talked about Jesus departing uh, Galilee and heading through Samaria down to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling to Jerusalem, people began to hear he's coming to Jerusalem. And they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out. And it's interesting that they would take palm tree branches. And there is a custom in the Middle East in that day, in the ancient day, that if a dignitary or a king or a ruler was coming to town, then he should be welcomed by laying down palm branches, which spoke of really peace. And we know that at the time that Israel was under the oppressive governments of the Romans and that their, uh, their, their situation socially and day-to-day life was very difficult because they had very little. And uh, they were going out. The common people had heard. And John chapter 12 also brings out to the point, we'll see this later, that people that had seen Lazarus or heard that Lazarus had been risen from the dead they actually came to see him. And so, and they took, took branches in verse 13, went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. And then we see it quoted here in Zechariah chapter 9, Fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And, you know, I think that it could be interpreted that a man riding on a donkey would be kind of a sign of humility or self-abasement. But that is not really the case. Uh, rabbis and men of importance would ride on these, kind of don- on these types of donkeys' colts. And as he's riding in, his disciples were not understanding these things in verse 16 at first. But when Jesus was glorified, after he rose from the dead, then they remembered that these things were written about him, that they, should, that they had done these things to him. Therefore, in the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they had heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, and they were really worried about what was going on, because the Pharisees were the religious mafia that were under the control of the government, the Roman government, and also under the control of the uh, racketeering, religious racketeering that was going on in Israel at the time. And so the Pharisees were worried, they said, uh, they said in another instance of this, um, in another gospel, they, they said, Jesus, tell your disciples to stop doing that. And they were nervous because they were afraid that the Roman government was going to crack down on them. They were going to lose their position and authority. And they were also afraid that they were going to get flack from the uh, high priests and the, uh, the religious leaders. And they said among themselves, this is hopeless. They basically said, it's hopeless. You can see that the whole world has gone after him. Isn't that beautiful? And that is really, we look at the 
the world today, we see the political scene and what's happening in the world and churches today, and we can really see that this day is coming where there's going to be a Palm Sunday, if we could call it, in heaven someday. And the day when Jesus Christ will, uh, in, in Revelations chapter 9, and I want to just read this verse to you. In Revelations chapter 9, it says this, that, that in heaven, those that had died during the tribulation, that had died as martyrs, were dressed in white, and they, were, they had palms in their hands, and they were singing salvation to the Lord. And you know, this Palm Sunday, when we celebrate this day, it is really a foreshadowing of that great day in heaven, when we in heaven will be worshiping Jesus Christ, our King, who had came to save us. And as Jesus is, is coming in, people are just amazed. They are elated. Uh, just imagine it. The long-awaited Messiah had come, the King of Israel. And not just of Israel, but of the whole earth. People, Jews knew, they knew this verse in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. They knew that the king was coming, and now this was the day that he was coming to set up his kingdom. And Jerusalem would be the capital city of the world. This is what's going on in their minds. And they, they are correct. They are, they are correct to understand in the Old Testament that Jerusalem would be the capital of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. After the rapture and after the tribulation is the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ when he is reigning as king of the earth. And during this reign, his capital will be Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be, the, will be the capital of the entire world. And yet, the disciples, we'll see later in a few minutes, they were missing something here. But the whole city was in an uproar. They were amazed. And what a great day this was because now there was going to be finally world peace. I'm sure that people would be asking, well, how's he going to do this? You know, the talk in Jerusalem, how is he going to do this? Is he going to cause a riot? Is he going to, is he going to cause an uproar or an uprising? How many of us will die? And he, maybe some of his disciples were thinking, are we going to die in this matter? And they began to think, or maybe Jesus was going to call down fire from heaven like the Elijah, the prophet Elijah did, uh, and burn up all the prophets of Baal. Yet, Yet, there was a bit of a misunderstanding the disciples had. Yes, Jesus was coming back to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. But there's a pause there. If we, let's just read Je Zechariah chapter 9 so we can get the whole context of what they're thinking. Chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now, who is the daughter of Zion? Who is that? Anybody? The church. It's the church. And then it says, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Who's the daughter of Jerusalem? The Jewish people that become believing in their, in their Messiah. So you have two groups here that are told to rejoice. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And then here's the promise. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem. And I can't get into it today, but these were two parties of oppressing parties on the Israeli nation. The bow, the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
And this is world peace. But in the middle of that passage I'm reading, there is actually a pause. There is a break. There is a period of time which is called the time of the Gentiles. And the disciples are not understanding this. They don't remember in Luke chapter 9 that we read last week that Jesus said, I have to go to Jerusalem. And I want to read that with you. If you'll just read with me, um, if you go to Luke chapter 9, um, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 through 56. And we're going to just park in that chapter for the remainder of the message. Luke chapter 9. Somebody came to our meeting last night, the seminar, and they saw that we were teaching about dating from the Bible. And they were like, wow, I didn't know it was going to be that kind of a seminar. I would have brought my Bible. And I said, yes, we are a Bible-based church. We have Bibles here. We, we use our Bibles. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And I'm just going to read these verses, 51 through 56. 51 through 56. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he has steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And this is what we talked about last week. That he had time, it was his time to go to Jerusalem and he had set out to do that. And he sent messengers before him, his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. And these messengers were going before Jesus as he was making his last journey to Jerusalem to that point where he would be received with palms. And so he sends messengers ahead, and these messengers say, Look, Jesus, the King of Jerusalem, the King of Israel, the King of the whole world is coming. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10 is about to be fulfilled in prophecy. Prepare your village, because he's going to come through here. But what did the Samaritans say? Now these were, uh, these were a group of interesting people. They were... Uh, in some cases, they were sympathizers to the Roman oppressive government. Uh, they were, they were they, in some cases, they were betrayers. They were um, Benedict Arnold's. And when they had heard that he was going to Jerusalem and not stopping in Samaria, they got offended. And it says in verse 53, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. I want to stop there for a second. You know, Jesus had set his face to Jerusalem. And he was going to Jerusalem not to become king there. He had already said to his disciples in other places and also in this chapter earlier, in the, in the, in the verses of 20s, 22, that he's going to go and he's going to, be, he's going to be suffering many things. And because as he's suffering there many things, he would be also falsely accused he would be delivered up and he'd be crucified and then he would rise on the third day. And for some reason, the disciples are not processing this. They are not understanding this. And, it's, and it brings us to a point that there are some aspects of the plan of God that if he were to tell us, it would just go over our head. Sometimes we pray and say, God, tell me your plan. And there are things about his plan that he can't reveal to us yet because we just cannot comprehend it. You know, I'm sure that when Ron, before he started that ministry with the, with the house, and that would be great to have something like that here someday, a house for people that are just getting on the road again. We used to have one in Baltimore called the Grace Home. I'm sure that when he was doing that, he, could, he did not foresee in the plan of God that there would be a cheater pipe, you know. And I'm sure that if there were things that God showed to us, we would not have the capacity to bear it. 
Maybe there are things that we've gone through this year that if we knew beforehand that we're going to go through this, we would have been like, no thanks, God. I think I'm going to go the easy route. And so there are things that, that the disciples were not comprehending. And so Jesus is saying, I'm sending my face to Jerusalem. I'm going there to do one thing, die. I'm going to go there to die. Not to become king, but to go there to, be, to die. And it's interesting how people can look at, how we can look at the plan of God. The disciples can look at the plan of God. The inhabitants of Jerusalem can look at the plan of God and see something different than really what's happening. We can look at the scriptures and interpret the scriptures a certain way, like, wow, God is coming and he's going to do this amazing thing. But we miss the process that there's point A and there's point B, but between point A and point B, there's a process. And we see that as the Samaritans did, they did not receive him and they were offended. And so in verse 54, his disciples, James and John, saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? And I think that the disciples, James and John, we know they were called the sons of thunder. They were two boisterous young men that were just red. They were very zealous, very little experience and wisdom uh, in the ministry and in Christ. And they're like, let's see some fire. <laughs> let's see some fire, Jesus. You know I mean, now you're coming. I mean, we've, we've been low key. We've been kind of doing some great miracles. And now it's time to let the whole world know that Jesus is coming. And we're part of that. And we're part of it. You know, James and John, we're part of this. You know, we're, you know, we're in on this. And we want to see some fire down from heaven. Just burn them all up. We'd just like to see some toasted Samaritans this, this day. And Jesus said, what? Jesus said, he said, in verse 55, he rebuked them. And he said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. And Jesus said, you're missing the whole thing. You don't even know what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man, in verse 56, did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so he went to another village. And it's just amazing how, as Jesus is traveling that in verse 22, he was to suffer many things and to be rejected. And in verse 44 of chapter, chapter 9, he also says these things, let these words sink into your ears. He's telling his disciples again, before this journey to Jerusalem begins, he says, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is to, is to be delivered into the hands of men. But verse 45 tells us they did not understand the, seeing, the saying, and it was concealed from them, that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. You ever hear something and you're afraid to ask, God, what does that mean? <laughs> wow, God, that sounds pretty heavy duty. What does that mean? And we almost don't want to hear the explanation. Therefore, their understanding of Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem was flawed. And they saw him as a king moving into to take control, and he was, but there was a process. And we can see that. The disciples are not ready. We see later on, in, um, in another portion of scripture that they're arguing about who's the greatest. They're already trying to set up their thrones of who's going to be world rulers. The disciples are, are not ready for this aspect of the plan of God. And sometimes God will reveal things to his church, to his disciples. But the, the accomplishment of that has to happen after a process in our life because right now our character and our maturity is just not there yet for that to happen. And so Jesus is saying, yes, I am king. I'm coming into Jerusalem 
to be king. I'm coming in to set up my kingdom, as it says in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. But it's a different kingdom right now. It's an invisible kingdom. It's called the kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom that's invisible, that will be not visible yet, but it's invisible. And that's the kingdom that we live in today. This is called the kingdom of heaven. It's a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly kingdom yet. But when Jesus comes after the rapture and after the, the seven-year tribulation, he sets up his, his kingdom for 1,000 years, this will be the time where his kingdom is on earth, the kingdom of God. And when this kingdom comes, that's when we see the visible revelation of God's kingdom, where his church and his people are reigning. And so the disciples don't see this yet. They don't see his resolution to, di to die and this is like the main point that I want to make in our message this morning. That Jesus set his face to Jerusalem to die amidst all the misunderstanding, the concepts. And many times that happens to us because Jesus' journey is your journey. Jesus' cross is your cross and my cross. Not in the sense that we're going to go and die for the world or die for somebody. But it's a cross in the sense that Jesus bore it for us. And it's a cross that when we take it up, we're set free from the old sin nature. We're set free from what we used to be. We're set free from the old memories. We're set free from the old habits. The greatest deliverance from any kind of addiction is this truth. I am not my sin. Romans 7 verse 20. Getting rid of having that having that severance of my old, my, my identity is no longer what I used to do. I'm not that person anymore. I've told this story, but I like it. And it just pictures the power of the cross so much that Jesus went to Jerusalem to die for. The story is, is that there was a young man in our church in Ukraine, and he uh, was a drug addict. He came to our church just under the, he was just, he was on drugs every day. He was coming to our Bible school and and he had come into a he had come into a dormitory of guys where it was kind of a mini grace home where guys were, were recovering from drug addiction. And um, I had never had any experience with working with people that had any kind of addictions. And God just said, "That's okay. You don't need all that. You just need to you just need to say one thing: You're a new creation. All things are passed away. Old things are passed away. Everything is new every day." That's all that they need to know, and that's all that you need to do. And that's what I just did. I just preached that all the time. And, and what happened was is that these guys discovered victory in their life, and God set them free uh, from, without using all of those crazy substitutory drugs, methadone and stuff like that, which didn't exist at the time. God just set them free, and it was amazing. And I remember one of them, we were at an we after-church fellowship rap, and... I asked him, I said, you know, we were talking about this, and I said, you know, why don't you just share with us, like, how, you know, what, what God did in your life and how your life was before. And he, his name is Volodya, and he, and he said, he looked at me puzzled. He was like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, like how your life was before you met Christ and, you know, how salvation came in and delivered you. And he just kind of shook his head like, I, I, don't, I don't understand. What, what do you mean? And I thought, okay, he's living in denial. He doesn't, want to, he, doesn't want to, he doesn't want to admit this. And he goes, Pastor Chris, he goes, 
goes, that, that, that man's dead. It's a, I, I have no relationship with him. I have no history with this guy. It, it's, it's like talking about someone I don't even know. I'm sorry. And I love that because that is just such a testimony of what Jesus did on the cross. He came to Jerusalem to die. And this is why he came to die. And this is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Some people may say, well, you know, and I think this week I would just encourage you to read through your, through your, through your Gospels about the steps that Jesus took. Just read from John chapter 12 on through the resurrection. Just do that. Just take a, a, cha- a couple chapters Monday, Tuesday, when, go through it, and then Friday we'll, we'll examine it together, his crucifixion. And people may say, well, that was such a huge burden that Jesus took, and it must have been so hard for him, and it must have been such a painful experience. But we forget what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that he had a nature like ours. And you know, his nature, his humanity was just like ours. He would shrink back from pain. He would, um, he would have enjoyed a marriage and children and grandchildren and a long life and a good reputation in the community, I'm sure. Jesus had a mother and he had brothers and he had sisters. He had a family. He had family events that he would go to growing up. He had his, he had his special places in the mountains where he would go and be alone and pray. Uh, he had to turn his back on all of this and set his face towards the imminent vicious whipping and the um, pain and the suffering that was facing him, the mockery and then the crucifixion. And I think it would be easy for us to get overwhelmed with the pressure and the pain that Jesus was facing. But, you know, there was something that was bigger than all of that. And there was something bigger than all of the pain and all of the rejection that he knew that was coming and that was the joy that was set before him jesus was excited about going to the cross and that sounds strange doesn't it but jesus had in his mind great passion and great desire to go to the cross die on the cross and be resurrected why because in hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 it says that for the joy that was set before him he endured the contradiction of sinners and these and the shame of the cross and there was shame on that cross. If you were, you know, if you grew up in Israel at that time, you would see very often Roman soldiers crucifying people uh, publicly. It was a public execution. And as people were dying, um, people would gather around these crosses and they would mock and spit and throw things at these losers that were on the cross. And they would be called names and they would be, it was like maybe back in the day when we had in the States stocks. Remember these things that, you know, you put your head and your hands in and it's this wooden thing that comes down and you're there and people right in the center of town and people walk by and they're throwing tomatoes at you. And this was the same thing for Jesus, but at a much higher level. This was a place of great shame and not only pain, but shame. And so what carried Jesus through that? Well, there was joy before him. The joy that was set before him. And this joy was you and I. I really believe at that moment as Jesus was on the cross, as he was heading towards the cross, through, through the Gethsemane, through the uh, rejection, through the seven trials that were illegal that Jesus went through, he was thinking about you. He, ha- he had your face in his mind. I'm sure he did. He's God. He could have done that. Every person 
saved or unsaved. He had them on his mind. Imagine that. God had you on his mind as he was suffering. And there are these times when you and I ask the question, is it really worth it what I'm doing? <laughs> what did I sign up for? You know, is this really something that I want to be doing? Why am I doing this? Can you tell me why we're doing this anyway? And the answer always was for Jesus, that joy that was set before him, that he was going to be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus would think about that time, that heavenly Palm Sunday in, 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 um, in Revelation chapter 9, when there would be all the hosts of heaven would be rejoicing together over the resurrected Jesus Christ. This was the joy that was set before him. This was the hope and the great excitement. I'm sure his heart was beating with excitement and joy. John 15 verse 13 is another thing that Jesus had motivating him. No greater love is there than a love that would lay down his life for the brethren. Jesus loved his brother. He loved his disciples. We see this in John 15 verses 1 and 2. He said, and later on in the chapter, he said, Jesus having loved his disciples to the end. And the Greek word there means the end of a process, not at loving them till they failed and walked away. No, Jesus loved them till the end of the process. Jesus loved Judas all the way to the end. And what did Jesus do? He went out and hung himself. Jesus loved his disciples. He loved Peter all the way to the end. And what did Peter do in the end? He denied, he betrayed him three times. I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced betrayal, but that is unbelievable. Jesus experienced betrayal where he was sold out. Jesus loved his disciples. He loves you and he loves you and I to the end of the process. You know, we're in a process and Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on the earth. And we're just not there yet because, of course, that time hasn't come. But you and I are in a process where we'll be reigning with him as kings and priests. But there's a process that is being worked out in our life, and this is John 15, the process of God's love, that, that at no point does he ever give up on you and I. He never throws in the towel. Uh, he never throws in conditions. I will love you if. Um, you know, last night we were talking with some folks that they're single, and, and it, for some of them it was just so hard for them to understand that God is going to bring somebody into your life, and it's not going to be you making it happen. I think that in our mindset, there, are, there is this thinking that I've got to make certain things happen in my life for that to happen. But it really isn't. It's really the process of God. And Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18, he wasn't living in victimhood. He wasn't living, I think, when a person suffers a lot. You know, I, I just can't get this image out of my head and of, of this um, man in, in the Middle East. Uh, he was one of these believers that were burned alive in a cage. And I didn't see the video. I know it's out there, but I don't want to look at that. He was sitting in a cage, like an animal cage, with his yellow-orange suit. He's sitting there on his knees with his head down. And I thought, here's a brother in the Lord was just such uh, shame. I mean, he looked like he was just overwhelmed with just the the tragedy and the travesty of what was going to happen to him. And he had his head down. And I thought, I wonder, and I'm sure that the Holy Spirit encouraged him before he was, his life was taken and before he suffered. Because that same hope that was in Jesus is in every martyr. You know, today, 
there are people that die every day for the faith. They, you know, we see these horrible, we hear about these horrible things happening, entire villages. Uh, I just read last night that, uh, you know, Christians in one village were chased into the ocean and they're running into the ocean and they're being shot at as they're going into the ocean. You know, these are martyrs that will not, that will not, that will not um, accept and, and uh, accept Islam and renounce Jesus Christ. And Jesus had this hope that was set before him. And, and that may happen someday in America. I don't know. God, I hope it doesn't. But, you know, this hope that is set before you and I would, with whatever we are suffering, we are not victims. And I like in, in Acts chapter 9 when Stephen was being stoned. What did he do? He looked up and he saw Jesus standing. You know, Jesus is always sitting at the right hand of the Father. But in this event, he's standing. He's standing in honor and, and respect for Stephen who's being martyred. And this is the hope that's set before Jesus Christ and before us. That whatever we go through, whatever the process is, we are not victims. John 10 verse 18 says, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus said, No one's taking nothing from me. I'm laying it down. I'm laying it down voluntarily. I'm just laying it down. I am not a victim. And so I want to close with this, that Jesus' cross is really our cross. And it's a cross that means that it's something that I take up every day. And, you know, there may be times in our life where we have a Palm Sunday. We see Jesus marching into our Jerusalem. We think, this is it. It's all over. It's all going to be great now. I mean, everything is, and, and, and where am I going to? Am I going to be a great leader in the new kingdom? Who's going to be the greatest? And the, and the realization comes in that there's a cross that Jesus first has to take before promotion and before resurrection. And this cross is our cross that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of elation in Christianity. And you can turn on the TV and see it all over the place on Christian TV. You know, you just got to believe and you're going to be wealthy. And, uh, you know, I think if some of these folks um, were alive during Jesus' day, they would say Jesus, would, Jesus died on the cross because he didn't have enough faith to be blessed. And to be delivered from his salvation, from his situation. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, My cross is your cross. He said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And I just want to say, there's a cross for us daily. The cross is not your situation, my trouble, my health situation, my finances, my kids, my wife, my husband. That's not a cross. The cross is not. A situation. The cross is actually the truth that old things are passed away, everything is new. And this is what we take up every morning. I don't take up my problem, my situation, my disappointment, my depression, my addiction, or whatever we may be struggling with. We take up a principle that is that old things are passed away. Yesterday is gone. Every morning is a brand new beginning. Those people that have wronged me or hurt me yesterday. It's all under the blood, and I'm, I'm free from that. And Jesus said, let him deny himself, meaning I just got to deny my own natural thinking about things. I got to deny my own feelings, my own emotions that are so reactionary to things. I got to take on the new creation, God's mind and God's spirit, 
And that can only happen through a quickening of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5, verse 18, and Romans 8, 11, where we are quickened by the Holy Spirit, and we are renewed by His Spirit, and we are energized. And, and then when that happens, we can, we can follow Him. And Jesus said, For whosoever shall save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, will, he will save it. And so Jesus set his face to walk to the Calvary Road. And because he did, we have a new life. Now what is Palm Sunday for us this morning? It is the rejoicing of our King and Savior who went through the cross, who is now seated in the right hand of the Father. And though we don't have these, real, these palms in our hands that we'll have that one day in heaven, this is really a day when we can just rejoice and thank the Lord for his great victory over sin and over death and over the devil. And this is why we, we celebrate Palm Sunday. And we're going to be giving palms out at the ends. Isaiah is going to be handing them out. And when you take it home, just remember this represents Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. My peace with God. That's what the palm's all about. It's not about anything else but that we have peace with God today. That God is not at odds or upset or discouraged or disappointed with you and I. He is happy with His Son. And He will love us to the end of the process when we give up that. You know, when Sister Clara breathed her last breath, I'm sure that Jesus was right there and the process was going on in her life until the last moment. You know, that's what happens is that Jesus is with us. God is with us. And as long as we're breathing, the process of God is not done in anybody's life. Amen? Amen. So let's close in prayer and just thank the Lord for this truth.